out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Carl Blake, the multi-instrumentalist, guitarist, bassist, songwriter, and much, much more. To find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff, one-time member of the Lemon Kittens and also Shock-Headed Peters, and has worked with people like Daniela Dax. So... We might just get on with the interview. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject. That was the early formative years. Carl, it's over to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, it's an odd one because I kind of divide my musical interest into, you know, the initial stages of it, up into three, really. Um, the first being my father singing around all the time, singing things like... Uh, she wears red feathers and a hooli hooli skirt and that kind of crap. He, he, he used to adopt the kind of baritone voice of the, you know, the pre-rock and roll era, you know, and any kind of ballad that was from a show song, he'd sing. And I'd get, I get, I, I would quite appreciate those. But then I suppose, you know, Top of the Pops, not Top of the Pops, um, Ready, Steady, Go. And I remember seeing Dusty Springfield and, on there and uh, and uh, what's his name, that one that Mark Alman did the cover of. Oh, uh, 24 um, hours from Tulsa, you know, that, that, yes. that one. Oh, he's Gene Pitney, Gene, Gene Pitney, Pitney. And, and stuff like that. So I liked all that kind of thing. And uh, I, they said all the TV stuff and, and you know, I'd seen uh, Sir Arthur Brown on, on, on TV with his fire and his, my mum talking to her mate's, mate's mother was saying, oh, yes, and have a building burnt down as a result of this and all this kind of crap. And then <laughs> we didn't have TV for about, uh, we didn't have TV, or therefore, it was only down to the radio, which I was listening to, like um, Family Favourites and uh, what was the other one that came in? Oh, Ed Stewart. Stewart. Oh, you know, he was one of the prime yes. people, you know, because he was playing pop uh, pop charts and, and all that kind of crap. Um, what was it? Fa- um, family Favourites. Well, I, yes, there was Family uh, Favourites. Well, yeah. I can remember um, in the late 60s probably listening to the radio via my mother who was doing the washing as you did, and all the, the all the all the forces stuff you have. Yes, yeah, that's you remember that? the family yeah. favourites. But um, your your Dave uh, Dave was it? Oh, Stuart. He did the what's the recipe today, Jimmy Jimmy Young. That's the one, isn't it? Oh, God, that I did not listen to. But I mean, oh, I, the other thing I do remember is too. This is all kind of prior, really. There was a patch when we didn't have TV. I think my parents. I don't know why they they decided it was an evil or something like that. And, I didn't. We didn't get re-get one until about 1973, which actually corresponded when they bought their first record player, I think, which or 72, which is when. Actually, I'm not sure on the date on this, but that was when I started getting buying my own bits and pieces of music to play on there. Right. Um, but before that, I do remember I was very much keen on um, John Barry from the films, you know, the Bond yes. movie music, and all the and uh, the Enrico Morricone stuff, which. I remember going on a holiday to Visa with my parents and some barman had a seven-inch single of a version of one of those things. I'd be pestering him to put it on and again and again and again kind of thing. But then, yeah, but then it came, as I said, they bought a record player. That corresponded with me meeting a chap. It's a couple of people, actually. I was a racing cyclist and then I met a couple of people who put me on to prog, actually, right. prog music for the most part. Um, so I had this love of Motown, Motown which I would... That was one of my first records, and I thought it was. This is how ignorant I was. I was. I, mean, I was still cycling at the time, and I remember thinking, "So yeah, the record player must have been in seventy one, seventy two. Um, 
as it was when I was at Blenheim Palace. I won a big race. And, it, and uh, I remember talking to one of the guys there and he said, um, he was a Hendrix fan. And I remember arguing the toss about the fact that, well, you know, these, these Hendrix albums are about £2.14, but I've got this for 99p. And, it's, <laughs> and I've still got the record. It's Soul Spectacular Volume 3. Which is um, which was Motown songs and other things of that ilk, but covered by someone. I didn't understand the concept of these weren't the originals. These were. Well, it's, in, <laughs> it's <laughs> interesting you should say that because um, it's yeah. interesting because my because my parent, you know, because like I said, my I'm I'm sort of I was born in the mid '60s, so I'm in my mid '50s now. But my parents, when they got married in the '50s, they sold everything, yeah. and my dad's you know records and record player, and because he was kind of I suppose into Elvis and all that kind of and Teresa Brewer and and those kind of artists like that, and then yeah. got a sort of a, a turntable, I suppose, or stereo. No, not a stereo. It would have been just a record player or music center. Yeah. I think they used to be called in the '70s. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Those yeah. And. Um, they bought a few records, and my favourite one was the Top of the Poppers sing the Carpenters, and I didn't realise oh, I, I didn't realise that wasn't the Carpenters for quite a long. I still think it was an amazing album, and I still own it. Yeah, I, st- yeah. I, I kept it because it has such an amazing memory of me. But it was interesting because my because we had the black and white telly until the Olympics in 1972 when we got this colour telly, yeah. and, and we were kind of blown by the whole experience and just watched it for hours on end. So it's interesting you you also had a slightly different, same same kind of. Yes, you didn't have everything on the plate, so to speak. No, I mean, as I said, I hadn't really thought about the date of the record playing, but I think it probably was about either a year or two years before I got the guitar. My dad, that was my um, 1973, and my dad bought me a, a guitar for my birthday, um, an electric guitar, which was he got for three quid from um parents' place. Oh, okay, I will do so. Uh, a friend of mine just said, say hi to him. Uh, he's got a very good catalogue there, a certain Miss Daniel Dax. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Be safe, she says. Yes. I'm in sitting in her library at the moment. Who's, who's library? Uh, Daniel Dax. Oh, are you? Oh, right. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, because uh, I'm, I'm not online at home and everything else like that as well, Susie. So I can't actually, about, lives about four miles away from me. So ah, I, okay. Trot up there. Um, yes, but what was I talking about? Um, oh God, uh, can't think of what I was saying. Oh yeah, the record player yeah, would have been about um, t- one year before that, and he managed to get this guitar. I can't remember if I'd expressed an. Yeah, I can't remember if I expressed an interest in playing this. I must have done because he bought this for three quid, and it's, I've still got the thing. And it's a Burns guitar, which is uh, kind of you know very much an out about five hundred quid worth now, sort of thing. I think that. And that was it. I sort of started off playing. And um, did you say five hundred quid? Probably, yeah. God, yeah. that's kind of got more. It's got the... more actually because it's a left-hander. You see, it's uh, yeah. So your parents yeah. must have thought, "Wow, this kid's got talent." I mean, that's quite. Well, a lot. no, no, they, they 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 pay three quid for it. Oh right. <laughs> you see, what I mean, they didn't pay. No, no, they didn't have that much. Cool, that would have been loads of money in that time. God, that would have no, been no, a year. That would have been a year's my... salary. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. My dad got it from a pal at work for three quid, which was kind of even, you know, it was very cheap. I mean, even then, the sort of thing. I mean, I, can't, I think I had about 75p pocket money at the time, so a week or so, it was it was still very cheap. But I mean, yeah, I mean, as I said, now it's worth about 500 to Oh, more, maybe. I've got you. Sorry. Because I, I was yeah, thinking no, one. No, they're, they're, um, 
they're very much look yeah no they're very much um you know liked now they're uh, yes um, yeah, revered, revered, revered yeah. so it's interesting because because you were you, you mentioned the cycling thing and i remember we played a lot of football because it was cheap and you had a football yeah. and you just had a field and you ran around playing football but you know getting into music was something that wasn't something on my radar or the people i was in the village or in the community with so so yeah. was there a sort of a was there any any kind of reason for you getting into music well, yeah yeah it was through it was actually through um I think I, I always liked music, and I was always listening to it anyway, but I was instead of just doing the cycling. And there was a particular chap at the cycling thing who introduced me to one of his other friends who wasn't anything to do with cycling. And this guy was a total... He'd gone... He was started to work started work early, and he was just buying albums by the ton, sort of thing. And, um, you know, prog stuff. And, and uh, he actually gave me a load of his stuff at one point in time. I'm um, still friends with him on Facebook. Uh, well, we hadn't seen each other for a very, very long time. Um, but uh, when Facebook came about, there, I, there he is, my chap, this chap from Reading who I hadn't seen since I was seventeen or something like that. Yes. Um, uh, but um, then he, used, he gave me some of the records, and at the same time, there's a friend of mine at school who, um, because of my hay fever, uh, I used to be one of the sick, dying, or dead on Wednesdays when when it came to summertime, because although I was cycling, I was having to take kind of hay fever pills, pyroton and things like that. To, uh, and therefore, I, but I managed to get off of cricket and all that kind of crap because of my hay fever. Oh. So I'd end up getting off school, getting out of school, leaving school in the afternoons, effectively almost like playing through it, although there wasn't any lessons for me, and uh, going down to town. And my, my friend at the time would buy me albums. You know, it was generally, uh, it was again, a, very, a different chap, very generous. And that's how I got the first Velvet Underground, the Nico album, for example. It was in a sale at Rumbelow's, which was the <laughs> an electrical store kind of thing. And um yeah, and, and started buying up stuff around that. It, it was all it was all nineteen seventy four, basically. That was when I was in the upper six. Yes. So did you have those six, did you have those moments of kind of like David Bowie, T Rex, you know, kind of because well, yeah, I mean, the, the, what that what actually happened was, I do remember now, because we, we, I was into very much the charts and all that kind of stuff, because uh, that's normally what you'd hear on certain radio stations. But when I began going into the fifth, from the fifth year into the sixth year, I was in the secondary modern school, but I, they allowed me just about by the skin of my teeth to go in and take um, A-levels, which I promptly failed. But at that time, we had the grammar school boys in the, next, to, next to us, because it was a, what do they call them now? Um, it was one of those split schools between secondary and grammar, oh. no intermediate thing. And the gra- that we would have things, for example, the teacher would say, oh, well, the grammar boys were doing this last year. So there was this, I think they had to drag us along. We were the scum, basically. And uh, But you know, being allowed into the fifth year um, was paling of it from um, the, the rubbish. And then we'd split up into going to grammar, what was effectively only one stream, like the grammar, and doing A-levels. Yes. Um, but next door, next door to us in the classroom, we'd have these cassette kind of brick-shaped cassettes, uh, cassette players like ITPKB and things like that, and with wood, wood veneer finish on plastic, and we'd be playing our cassettes of our pop songs. And next door had been granted the use of a hacker, um, you know, record player by the school. So, um, so there was a difference for a start and I'd look through the window and I'd hear them playing various things they'd be playing Rory Gallagher and God knows what else and, and there's various bits of prog and I'd actually start liking that stuff and, and oh Uriah Heap and things like that so they were 
they, I, I started getting interested in their music and the grammar school's music. And, and at the same time, I got asked to join a band. Yes. Uh, by someone, they said, "Oh, what can can you play an instrument?" Um, and at that time, I hadn't got my. I don't think I'd got my guitar. And and uh, I said, "Yeah, I can play the flute." And they said, "Oh, you know, come along and uh, have a go." And when I came along, the flute that I said I could play, I wasn't being dis. I wasn't telling them lies. Was a thing that had a label on it, say Bengal flute, which was a piece of bamboo that my dad had bought at a fairground somewhere that had holes drilled in it in a way that, well, let's put it this way, they weren't strictly in the, any particular scale. <laughs> so if you, tried to, if you tried to play along with anything that was tuned, you'd have extreme problems. So yes. the chappy sort of said to me, uh, we're in his greenhouse, he said, um, ah, well, can you sing? And I said, well, yeah, okay. I'll have a go, kind of thing. And we did Jumping Jack Flash, I remember. Nice. Uh, my voice at the time was kind of, um, I had a, a certain technique. It was basically make as much noise as physically possible. You know, <laughs> it was a, it was quite a screech owl sort of noise. Um, I would, uh, I can remember times, there were times later on, or a couple of years later, I was still singing with these bands, but I did hammer it. And uh, there were times when we didn't have a PA system. I remember almost blacking out from... Uh, yelling so loud, yes. literally, kind of everything closing in and kind of like an enormous pain in the head, kind of thing. Because yes. yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because my my brother's five, seven years older than me, and he was very in that seventies period was very into prog rock, ah. and I had sort of also because yeah. I kind of worshipped, you know, he was kind of my role model, and I suppose I worshipped his kind of everything about him because he was so cool, and um, he was into Yes and Genesis and Barclay James Harvest and Wishbone Ash, bit yep. of bit of Deep Purple and Black Sabbath thrown in. So were they kind of the, the bands that you had slightly and the sounds? Well, that you you're were quite right because you've you've made, reminded me. There's a third party in this, and the third party is a guy called Tony Furs, um, who was later on in Lemon Kittens in a. We called him our spiritual advisor. He never actually got around to playing any instruments, and he co-wrote the lyrics to "Go with the Flow," which came out on um, Spoonfed and Writhing, the longer version on CD. And uh, he came into the school from an RAF family. They'd been previously in Germany, and he had an elder brother. And his older brother had actually introduced him to like Black Sabbath, and I had heard Black Sabbath, and that's where I heard Black Sabbath for the first time, and the Groundhogs, and. I can't remember anybody else, but particularly those. Yes. And I was very, that was, they, they were kind of my, I suppose my absolute favourite were Black Sabbath. At right. The time. Wow. And I considered, that's why I did with The Underneath. I did an album called Black Roots, tribute to Black, a track called Tribute to Black Sabbath. It was actually, if you like, looking back to those Top of the Pops records where they had those things, a tribute to Deep Purple and all that kind of stuff, um, which was apparently done by Thin Lizzy in disguise, but that was a cheapie. Yes. Record. And um and it was in partially in the tradition of that and I did a kind of medley. It's actually terrible. <laughs> I must admit it's one of the worst things I've ever done, I think, on vinyl. But uh, but it but it's it's got its moments. There were there were a couple of good moments in it. But um yeah, Sabbath were, were great. And I didn't learn until many, many, many years later that um the first album sleeve was actually done it was a place I regularly used to visit and I used to go on very, very long walks with this guy Tony Furs. Um, a, a little village called Maple Durham, and it's the Maple Durham Mill oh. on the front sleeve of that, you know, with the witch kind of thing in front of it, you know. So, nice. Yeah, I used to love all that stuff. You used to go and buy them. Get, get, I used to generally get albums somehow cheap. I was all, I've always done this kind of thing. Come home on, and it was always the thing coming home on the bus and looking at the album sleeve at the time, you know, as well, which 
was like a whole different world. Oh, and God. I know. Well, absolutely. Really I can always yeah. remember that smell of the new record as you pulled out the sleeve and it was also, there was no scratches and there was, um, yeah. and also they used to have that uh, home, home tape in his killing music. Which was always very funny. Um, but, yeah, exactly. but then, so when did you think, actually, I'm going to be in a band? Well, I mean, as I said, that was around the time. That what happened was I did that, that, that guy asked me, can I do any instruments? I started singing then. At the same time, I formed my own band, which uh, one of these kind of Wikipedia people I've noticed has said, it probably made up titles for bands. You know, no, some, of, some of them were I did on MySpace. I made up just to piss off people with a bunch of things. But um, Orange Jelly Baby and the Six White Chocolate Mice. That was my my first band, as it were, that I formed, and it was like a, uh, I was singing for these other bands who were kind of some of the grammar school boys who wanted an idiot to shove out they could hide behind, yes. if you like. I think that's the view. Uh, that's my view of them, you know, because they were a weird bit condesc condescending to say the least. So I'd be the vocalist for them because, well, I was just that kind of person, you know. Um, you could stick me out front, but at the same time, I started playing one note guitar with bunch of fuzz pedals I got cheap and everything else like that and and um did the orange jelly baby and six foot chocolate mice which was like a ridiculous kind of thing because it had kind of like a euphony um bon tempi hit organ which was this kind of I don't know if you ever came across those they were wind again like a, the ventilating thing I mentioned early on with a fan these things had a fan in them so they worked a little bit like a harmon an electronic harmonium in that the um you hear this, and it had a loud whooshing noise at the same time as you played the no notes. But uh, effectively, yeah, I suppose it was an electric harmonium. But, mm. um, so that was the keyboard, and uh, and we had a euphon uh, euphonium player in it. One, I remember doing a version of "Time You Left This World Today" by um, by Hawkwind with tin cans drop for drums and um, dowling sticks, and me and me playing this one note riff on the guitar. So. As I said, my, my dad came up at one point in time when I was play, when I was trying to play because I had the who is it now the play in a day guitar book. Um, oh, but we, but, but guitar reason, book. yes, of course. That's, yeah, with him grinning on the front with his, you know, nice and playing. Is there a tavern in the town and all that kind of stuff? And it was just loathsome. So <laughs> to this day, I can't play chords particularly well. My my fingers are very very big, and I just thought, no, make a loud noise with one one string and a fuzz box. And uh, therefore, I turned into this kind of not a bass player, not a guitarist in, in official terms, kind of thing, you know, and and uh, do it that way. Yes. Um, so when did you? Yeah. Um, when did the the, the lemon kittens start ah, to sort of become? Well, the lemon kittens. Well, the lemon kittens. I was it, it that kind of sprung out. I joined uh, various bands after school, uh, you know, it, and up to a band called Maggots. Um, which was a kind of jazz rock band I was playing bass for that and I was the worst musician in them all the rest of them are really really good um, and at the same time I got another guy involved from a local band called Night Porter called Gary Thatcher and he came along for an audition for the bass because I think I was going to be a singer for a while and then he didn't get it but I continued on the bass and uh, at some point in time I asked Gary you know what about forming a band because we both like Roxy Music Black Sabbath and all this kind of stuff and that was actually on April. Well, the, the band formed the Lemon Kittens on April the fourth, nineteen seventy-eight. Seventy-eight. So yeah. Punk, so punk. Um, so punk yeah, had so sort about, of been popping along a bit, kind of excitedly. Yeah, punk had come out. I mean, I'd I'd been to um, with one of the with a vocalist the night Porter, Funny enough, I remember standing on a pile of rubble in the corner of a room watching the Sex Pistols play at um, Reading University for thirty pence. 
And uh, I remember not being overly impressed by the music, to be honest with you. It was because um, they were playing at the time, just doing a fairly lackluster bunch of kind of Who yes. cover versions and things like that. But I was very impressed with John Lydon. He had a great presence. He was like, um, there's a film that I really liked called um, Night Must Fall with, um, what's his bloody name is dead now, the actor, um, mm-hmm. Tom, no, Tom, uh, Tom, Tom Finney. I Tom. think no Tom Finney. Night must I fall. I can't think of his damn name. Yeah, night must fall. Um, I'm going blank with the name. Uh, but anyway, he's um, he does this the the, the the kind of uh, is a psychopath, and it's uh, based on a play from it by Emily Williams, and it came out in the early early sixties. Wonderful movie, anyway. Um, Harold Reese directed it. Yes. Um, and he, he at one point he rolls back his eyes, and Lydon had this thing about rolling back his eyes and on, on stage, and just looked absolutely insane. And this guy alongside me says, huh, "I could, we could do that." And I think I thought, well, I remember thinking at the time, "Yeah, but you're not, are you? They are. <laughs> he is particularly, you know." So, um, so this film, part, yeah. so the film you mentioned, Night Must Fall, was from 1937. It's quite an old film. Ah, that's the original. That's the original. Yeah, that's based. The 1937 was based on. Um, I'm pretty sure it's based on Emily Williams' stage play. Emily Williams went on to write a book about the. Um, pretty sure it was him. I wrote a book about the about the Moors murderers. Oh right. Um, Am I wrong? Oh, I uh, yeah, so Albert Finney's in the remake in 1967. Um, I might be completely wrong, but yeah, that's right, 93 with Susan Hampshire and Carol Reese. Yeah, oh. yeah, it was a great movie, really good. And in fact, at one point in time, there's a there's a photograph which we did where we happened to find some graffiti. Uh, it's a picture of me in my army jacket during, during the Peters days with kind of when I got really big hair. And behind me on the wall is kind of like sun face painted. And in the movie, this particular movie, we didn't do the graffiti ourselves, but these also painting on the ball in the room that he's got a kind of weird sun face. Whilst, um, oh, I'm getting shouted at. There's a cat in here somewhere. Oh, nice. Hello, do you want to go out? Sorry, I'm just going to walk over and let a cat out. Yes, don't, don't, don't take that don't get the cat. Don't, don't do anything without the cat. There we go. Go on in, little Siamese called. Yeah, Ooh, there you go. Nice. Yeah, so, go. so then, yeah. and, and so you had your period with the Lemon Kittens, which kind of ran. Oh, through. Lemon Kittens. That's right. Yeah, I mean, we we formed. I mean, what happened was we did that. Uh, with the, I did it with um, Gary for a, for a year. We got all sorts of different people in it. Um, we were sending off. Also, it was around the time of the cassette boom, and we were sending off. Um, you know, cassette music boom, and we were doing versions of songs. At the same time, I was starting to venture up to London from Reading, where I was living, and go to gigs. And uh, one of the keyboard players, because we had about 19 different people before Danielle joined um, into the band in, uh, again, April, May, 79, end of April, beginning of May. Um, but uh, the, one of the keyboard players I had used to go up to London. We went to Bay 63, and they, I see, said, oh, there's Mark Perry over there. And I said, um, you know, don't because I know what this guy's like. He used to go up and speak to people about two inches from their face because you're kind of overcoming his nervousness. Guy, I said, no, 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 just leave him alone. Don't, don't kind of. <laughs> anyway, he, I go and buy some drinks for for him, kind of thing. And when I come back, he is talking to Mark Perry, and, it's, and he's trying to convince Mark Perry that uh, Ian Drury and the Blockheads are the best thing to happen to music. And Mark's not really having any of it. So I introduce and start talking to him, and he says, "Oh, send me along a." recording of your stuff which we did and um 
at the same, then I got a pen, written in pencil, we'd like to release your record kind of thing. So that's when that happened. And I went looking for an, uh, an artist and uh, there was an artist, it's wrongly been reported. It was, we put an advert, we, I was in touch with Genesis Peorage or them by post, you know, writing as well. And they equally liked the CD, the uh, tape we sent. They didn't like the, the version we did of Venus in Furs because it was a bit like XTC doing a version of it. It was bouncy and wacky, which I yes. that was a side of them I didn't like. You know, I liked some of XTC, but I didn't like that. And and if you listen to the first stuff, this occasion is, I hate, I really don't can't stand wacky most of the time anyway. But um, anyway, so I agree with them a bit. But um, they, but uh, we didn't get Dax from, uh, I didn't get Dax into touch with Dax from an advert in Industrial News. We put an advert in the Industrial News, that, which we were putting out looking for anybody at the time. And I met Dax through an art uh, form of uh, the art group that was being formed in Reading. Um, and on the front of our local newspaper was this picture of this woman painting a young woman, uh, drawing on the pavement uh, in prison, in prison stripe overalls uh, she was wearing. And um, it happened to be Danielle and a mate of mine who was also, who had also been in them and kittens at some point in time on a separate matter. I didn't think any more of that that weekend said oh come along to this art group that's happening kind of thing on monday and i did and she happened to be there and we introduced her and that was kind of a case of one of those met her on a monday um <laughs> after asked asked her to, to do the album sleep uh, went back to her place with a bunch of other people saw the artwork on the wall she'd done thought absolutely incredible you know great stuff who is this really yes. talented asked her to do the album sleeve she said she could play flute and sax Ask her to join the band, and she's in the band. And coincidentally, by the following Saturday, we're going out with each other, kind of thing. So it was all, uh, all a bit kind of crazy, and you know, like whirlwind and everything like that. So, well, yes, and yeah, and that's when the band took off. And we, we actually, I said at one point in time, we had Mark Perry in the band. He would come up. He came up from London and and um, get really paranoid about getting cobwebs on his head from walking under the trees because. We'd actually have to walk home from. We rehearsed in a church up a vestry of a church, and we walk home to my parents' place, um, which was I don't know about three miles away, I suppose, up hill kind of thing. And I don't think Mark had been used much used to that. And a couple of years injured his foot in playing football at some point in time. Um, and uh, yeah, so it, he, uh, I remember him coming to the room at my room and saying, "Oh, Carl, there's a spider in my room. Can you get rid of it?" <laughs> so such a town boy it was not true you know it was quite funny yes yeah, so but, um, yeah, but, but, the... because by that time you see i mean one of the things that i hadn't said is apart from the guitar when i left school left work and i was still living at home till 22 22 23 actually 23 um i just basically went bonkers and bought everything in terms of musical instruments because i'd met a bunch of other people in the part meantime and they'd given up and they'd sold me a load of stuff so i had in my room i had two drum kits set up um all the stuff was going direct in jet, so it was all on headphones it must have sounded bloody awful from outside all you'd hear is a bunch of odd singing going on sporadically and kind of uh, drums being hammered the bits kind of thing um, yes so yeah, with, you know, with, yeah, go on. So I was going to say the lifespan of of um, the Lemon Kittens kind of drifted almost into the eighties, and you did, you know, it, it, well, it did into the eighties. We did, we were getting, yeah, Dax. It became a two piece in March of um, I think eighty one. We just became a two piece. We equally so because when we did the um, uh, we did the EP on 
uh, for um, what should we call it, step forward on in 1979. Um, they had asked us. We were going to do another single. We did. We recorded tracks for it. It was going to be Dax on one side, me on the other, and uh, my track was going to be. It's the two bits that are on Cake Beast, in fact. Um, uh, Babies in Grey. No, no, that didn't. No, on my album, solo album, Babies in Grey, on my first solo album, and um, Only a Rose. I recorded those in the morning. I'd pre-written um, Babies in Grey, basically, but Only a Rose I made the spot. And then Dax did a track in the afternoon on her own, which ne has never come out, which is actually really quite good, called New Statues, New Gods. Um, that was supposed to be coming out as a single on Step 4, but we didn't do it for some reason in the end, didn't get round to it. Um, but we linked up with United Dairies, who put out the album. Um, that was as a result of seeing the first Nurse of Wound album in the basement at Step Forward. And we wrote to them, thinking the cover was interesting at the time, not really realising that it was all kind of a bit dodgy at the same time. You know, but it was it was a very it stood out with its black and white design against all the hideous artwork that uh, that around that time. But most of the sleeves around that time are absolutely bloody awful, uh, I think. Um, but anyway, so we wrote to them and um, started putting out records and doing gigs as a two piece with an augmentation of. Um, and he hates me for this because he says, "Well, I was a member," kind of thing. But you know. I don't want to have another argument. Mike Barnes was on the drums for a while. Um, uh, the one who writes, you know, done the debate Beefheart book and a uh, big Beefheart book and uh, just came out with a prog book just recently. Oh, yes. And a guy, uh, and a guy called Ian Sturgis. They were our live section. Uh, at one point in time, we had this guy, Pete, um, Pete Fallowell on the drums for a couple of gigs. Um, he was... Uh, He's the bloke that that was in the jazz rock band Maggots with. Um, he's very, very good. He's a very good musician, but um, he's still doing Maggots. He's living over in France now. Um, and his brother was famed for writing the words to Dizzy Dizzy by Can and he and and putting together the cannibalism compilation. A guy called um, Duncan Fallowell. God, it's a complex um, world, but, isn't it? Yeah, so anyway, all kinds of bits and pieces. I must admit, I, mean, I do wander around this, but he was a drummer for a little bit, and maybe maybe about, only about three gigs. He was a little bit too kind of cosseted and didn't want to, you know, he wanted to fly everywhere or whatever or do this, that, and he didn't want to go in a van. Um, uh, was Mike, you know, uh, I don't know. He does, you know, it's one of those things we decided they were, had Dax and I had decided we we're just going to be a two piece, and, you know, that's why we recorded all our albums on our own. and you know, by that point in time, you know, it was old, you know, absolute control. We didn't have to do that. And live, though, obviously. And then later on, we started doing gigs as a two-piece live. But to be honest with you, they were absolutely bloody awful because it was using tapes. Yes. And um, and that's very hard, can be very hard to do, you know, with tape backing. Um, uh, we didn't adjust to it particularly well. Yeah. So did you? Yeah, we, so that was the beginning of 82, I think. We kind of like petered to a halt and Dax started recording a solo album. Yeah. And, um, did, yeah. and did that feel quite, you know, like Stevie Nicks with Fleetwood Mac? Did you think, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> oh, was it, what, what do you mean? In terms of, how do you mean? <laughs> I was just going to say, I remember when, um, I don't know, one of the problems they had in the early days of, of the classic lineup was that, they were having a bit of a rest and Stevie thought, well, I'm just going to do a solo album, which then became huge. And then it, the rest of the band, oh, no. you know, I just wondered, um, why, no, what, did, did the not, lemon, no. did the lemon kittens then just finish? We kind of petered to a halt. I mean, the problem was, as I said, we were a couple as well and it was a very, very fiery relationship. And 
it, it does differ in terms of when it actually ended it differs depending on who you talk to um you know that's that's part of the problem i suppose um although we are still you know obviously still pals and everything else like that and we you know we've had our off and on periods but i mean yeah i mean the relationship kind of started to come come apart and i think the band at the time you know came apart around exactly the same time really um i at one point in time what what was what it was doing because i was working at the same time i when we moved from reading to um to london having having worked in the tax office um the of course signing on they say oh you can come and work for us nice so i ended up well, i ended up working in the dss for four years and 11 months from uh when was it now well i finished in 85 at the end of 85 um so i was going to gigs when i was in them and kittens doing body paint where i was going to gigs i was going getting in about two o'clock in the morning sometimes on those gigs and being so dog tired and then i'd have a set of clothing i called my dirty clothing which meant that I washed my face and hands, but underneath all this clothing was the body paint still on. Um, uh, I was very, yeah, it was not, not very pleasant, and I'd go to work with, like, like that. Yes. <laughs> but, um, yes, uh, it died all the... Uh, it, 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 when we did get to have to clean it off, it died all the grout in the rented uh, flat we were in pink <laughs> in the bathroom. <laughs> but it was loads of, yeah, funny stuff, but... Um, yeah, so that's when. Anyway, Dak, no, there's no problem with doing. We're doing. We're doing solo as far as I was concerned. You know, I, it was always. Um, I mean, yeah, we we had joint control. I mean, early on, I was writing most of the lyrics, but Dak started to, you know, get really good at that as well. And you know, later on, came and doing that. There was no kind of, you can't do this, you can't do that. We play anything, you know. Yes. And she was very good, you know, very very good at it. Um, yeah, and then she did the solo thing, and we were living in the same place and everything. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, no, that was fine. But and then the Peters started up quite by chance simply due to the fact I was having to work. I was living in a place called Gypsy Hill in in uh, near Crystal Palace, and they'd made a mistake when they got me the job because they thought I was living in a place called Gypsy Hill, which is very near Kingston in Kingston on Thames. In fact, about you know just a, it's a suburb somewhere around there. Um, as it was, I had to commute, and it cost me about that meant I was taking home about three pounds more um, when I worked. <laughs> than I was when I was on the dole because it was all going on travel. Um, and in Kingston was Beggar's Banquet Office, where um, the shop, rather. And that's where Ashley Wales was working. Oh, um, right. And I met Ashley through putting an advert. We were put, I, mean, I wanted to put an advert in. He recognised me from the Lemon Kittens kind of thing. And he said, oh, you're the chap, Lara. And we got on really well in a chat. We'd chat away there. And then we decided to put a band together and we put an advert in that said, no, this, that, and the other. No badge wearers, no espadrille wearers. The whole list of no this, no that, and no other kind of stuff. And um, we rehearsed, uh, we, we put the shock-headed Peters together in basically in Ashley's basement um, with various people coming along until we settled on the final lineup. We had the um, a guy I knew called Tigger Glover who was, um, had been roadie, effectively, for... Um, Lemon Kitten, who I know from you from Reading, he was uh, became the bass player. Um, Mark Rowlett from a band called Metabolist, who I was really, I used to come up and see them play gigs. Um, before Mark was in the band, there was another really really good drummer. Mark had a different style. I mean, uh, but the other guy was fantastic. And I'd see Metabolist, and I was a uh, one of the main kind of people who praised their praised them than the Nines. And unfortunately, for some reason, they're not talking to me any well. It, it, 
time goes on and there's a strange thing now. I don't know what's going on at the moment, but I haven't seen him for a while. Like we tend to bump into each other if we go to magma gigs, but that's about it. <laughs> um, and we, I, I continue kind of various involvements with Malcolm through the time. But anyway, um, Mark came into the band as a drummer and Tig and I'd seen Dave Knight. That was the weird thing with, with, with Dave Knight. Um, I, I knew Ash, but I didn't really know Dave. I knew he was in his band five or six with him. And I'd seen Mark, Dave walking across the road and realizing who he was. And we had a strike one day um, at ESS. And they told us to go to our local office. So I went down to the Battersea office. And because um, I was a low, lowest of the low uh, clerical, office, clerical assistant, they put me to write in um, gyro checks. And Dave Knight comes in at that point in time because he was working there. He was a, a higher up kind of thing. And he didn't know. And, it, and he sees me. I said, hello, Dave. <laughs> he said he thought to himself, there's Carl Blake, the baby eater, <laughs> which is the name that one of them had given because they had this vision of me being some kind of monster. And anyway, we got on talking, got talking, and uh, he lived very locally, and we went back to his place, dinner time kind of thing, and chatted and got natted. And I introduced him to Dax, and that was all, that was that kind of thing, really. Right. Uh, yeah, so he, she, Dax did a solo album, and then the next album, you know, she's working with Dave, and they set up, and, you know, the rest is history kind of thing. So, yes. And, uh, you... and, I'd, and in the meantime, he, joined, he was in Shock of the Peters kind of thing. So, yeah. But did you work again on any of the Daniel Dax? So yeah, a little bit. We played. I played guitar on um, uh, the second thing she did, uh, "Jesus Egg That Wept." Um, it's which, which was as a result. I mean, we swap things quite often, you know, with like titles and stuff like that. You know, um, I, I'd say this, that, and then Dax said, "Oh, well, that's a really good title. I'd give it to her or whatever." And "Jesus Egg That Wept" was one of these things that I'd, um, I don't know, I'd found. I think I found. A, I'd bought. I found a copy of the Sun newspaper, and that was the heading of Sun and told her about it and therefore you know it was about a, a hard-boiled egg that started weeping from the eye of a jesus that someone had drawn on it easter or something like that nice. and it was just a strange collection of words you know um, uh, but uh so you know i played guitar on the end of ostrich um and uh, later on she in the mid 90s she came along and we did that we played a couple of tracks did a couple of peter's tracks for the comatose non-reaction or not peter's tracks but one that had previously been a Peter's track called um, Light, but it was called Blight on the Bloody Tower then. And um, it previously it had been a Lemon Kittens track, which we never recorded. So, you know, it was all waste not, want not, <laughs> yes, <laughs> as it were. a good um, bit of... So as you... Yeah, so we played... We played yeah, go on. Yeah. No, no, I was going to say, as, as, as the sort of... And we did our first gig together, in fact. Yeah, the, the first gig we ever did, uh, Dax, and uh, it was a was the first day... Daniel Dax gig and the first Carl uh, and the first Shock of the Peters gig was together at a place called the Embassy and it was an awful gig because the people there never paid were really rude never paid us um, but apart from that it was a, and we had the bass player from our bass player couldn't do it and had the bass player from Sade's band oh nice um, yeah playing bass playing bass for us yeah mm. <laughs> so, and did you see yeah. kind of star quality in Daniel at that stage oh yeah I saw it right from the beginning <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, I mean, we always, as I said, you know, that joke that she's said in the past. We, we really had believed we could be. Why can't Lemon Kittens be on top of the pops? You know, and it was that kind of thing of you know because we had no boundaries. We weren't musical snobs in any way. We came up against that quite often. You know, from just that in the other area. You know, the 
the avant-garde area thought we were kind of who the hell are these people how dare they do this kind of thing yes you know there was a real snobby attitude horrible stinky attitude in lots of people for, partly for, for two things really i think um one of them there was an inc- there was incredible amount misogyny against danielle doing stuff um and b there was this snobbery just general snobbery about you know elitism basically they had their old little camp they want to keep it and and we you know we liked music right across the board there was a in a Lemon Kittens interview in 79, I'm talking about, or 1979 or 80, I'm talking about Black Sabbath, liking them. Yes. I said that Groundhog were a wee bit too bluesy for me, but then I was only judging on basis of one track. The rest of the stuff's excellent. So, yeah, you know, we had no kind of limits. We had some guy come along to speak to us who kind of, we played Led Zeppelin Immigrant Song, and he was all kind of, oh, how could he play this? You know, and I'm like, rub, rub her off. <laughs> you know, that was a... And why it's the you know because it's kind of tricky. Your your back catalogue isn't that easily available. Is there? Have no, you had no. problems sort of getting publishing and 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 managing? No, no, no. Well, no, we're not really. I mean, we've got all the all the you know we own all the publishing of all the lemon kitten stuff because we never gave it to anybody. Um, Cherry Red are illegally putting out one track still and. Uh, what it, which, which was on that uh, compilation. Yes. What it's called now. Is it called Wooden? Um, they, they, they haven't got the rights to that, and they're still putting it out. And but anyway, that's a, you might want to cut that out. They might, well, mind you, having said legally, they'll lose anyway. So, but um, they, they're putting it, and they shouldn't be putting it out. Um, but apart from that, I've got the copyright to everything I've done, apart from the underneath stuff, which I did with Cherry Red. Um, it was stupid of me, really. I, sh- I should have realised from the early days what they were going to be like. So have and you they, ever have you ever sort of thought of kind of putting out a really nice compilation of all your, your all your stuff? Well, we were approached. I was approached by doing this. I mean, I put him on his spot. There was a guy. There was a label called Crippled Dick Hot Wax hmm. that were working out of Germany. Um, who were doing? They did quite well for a while. They they, they did a lot of the. Do you remember that TV program? What was it called Euro Trash? Yes. And you'd have people doing this, the, 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 the strip club, the German guy doing his music soundtracks and all yes. that. Well, they put out a lot of those things, Vampiros Lesbos and stuff like that. And they did a really eclectic kind of bunch of releases. And he wanted to do a compilation album with um, my track, Babies in Grey, on it. But equally, so he got talking, got talking to him and he invited me over. And I joined the band in... He wanted to do an album and I joined the band in... The, 2010 or 2011 with him over there to re- I mean, recorded a whole album under the name Blacklit but it never came out um, but he wanted to do a double um, Shockhead Peters compilation at the time and we were planning it but it, it's just his record label it, it was just around the time when everything had collapsed if you remember the it was the first slump and he'd had a record label that had employed 32 people and then went down to him <laughs> and his, his cat kind of thing Yes. And his, his wife, 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 his wife helping out as well, and uh, so we talked about putting out this compilation, and it was going to happen. It was going to happen, and that was, as I said, two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve, and it's never happened. Basically, I mean, I suppose we've, you know, not. I'm not blaming him at all. It was, it was just inertia on a base, if that's the right word, for, on both of us. You know, we we couldn't be asked really. I suppose. Um, 
uh, maybe one day. Yes. Um, I don't know. Yeah. It's just yeah. hard. To, it's just sometimes hard to get some of the the kind of, you know. It is. It the, is. I mean, I, I went on a, the tablets, people, about their stuff and said, you should put it out. You know, you're being bootlegged, this, that, and the other place kind of thing. But part of my thing is I tend to sort of think, oh, who the hell is going to want to buy the bloody stuff anyway? Because we, um, in the last album we did, Tenderside, um, one of the reasons we kind of ground the halt was that Dave Knight got so... I don't know, just so fed up because it didn't sell very many. I wanted to just ignore all that aspect because I was I had a bit between things. Just wanted to carry on recording and recording, recording, and releasing, and just ignore that all. But uh, World Serpent, the distribution company that we were going through at the time, decided to play silly buggers and mess around with how much they wanted to pay us, uh, which wasn't very much anyway. And the sales, because we were effectively in the wrong area, that we weren't what they generally sold mm-hmm. um god knows, god knows what was the right place for the shock of peters at that point in time i don't know because we came you know uh, and therefore they didn't know how to market us and we went down sales wise to about i think the last one did about 600 and something in the end um it really did peter out um so despondency kicked in and dave did like they got fed up we tried to do some more writing we did a couple of recording sessions at his place kind of thing but uh we had one, the last thing we ever recorded, I think it's really good, but it was kind of, we just never got around to it. No. So I, I moved back from Sheffield back to back to London again, and um, Dave got busy with all various other projects he's doing, you know. So. Yes. And what was your and, relation? Uh, and obviously you had this quite another intense, I mean, because actually most people I interview have a bit of an intense relationship with a band and then decide that's it they're going to move on but you you've sort of stuck with a lot of different reincarnations of different bands and artists and working with people so the experience you had in the the kind of 90s with tony wakeford so how did (laughs) is that how does that chapter sort of run in your life uh extremely badly and extremely i mean you know i can't redo it unfortunately um if one of those things, you know, you say about regrets, if I could go back, I mean, I enjoyed going abroad and everything else like that. Because what I thought, the person I thought I was working with was a person who was a, a supposedly, supposedly reconstituted, um, you know, learned his lesson and knew better. Well, or at least, very least, managed, you know, learned to keep his mouth shut and his own stupid opinions to himself. And I used to believe he's got a right to his opinion, as this, that, and the other. But it's a stupid attitude, because if someone is carrying around that kind of poison in their mind, and it's it's not going to be whatever. What's that term? You know, we have it, it cross collateral. Yeah, it's going to have leakage into other areas of life. In other words, there's uh, no bad without bad kind of thing. Yes. Um, I thought he was being quiet about things. I didn't really. He, he was. I've made the joke about it being a need to know basis because at one point in time, I mean, I, I recruited a lot of the a lot of the musicians around that time, but when I went and moved up to Sheffield, I got, I got Matt Howden involved, I got Sally Doherty involved. They'd been people who played on Tenderside and everything else like that. And when I first played for him, I knew that he had been dodgy and he was kind of all moving away from that kind of stuff. And I got playing for Sol Invictus purely by chance because he was playing in a band of mine called British Racing Green. I was introduced to Tony Wakeford by um, Tibet and he said, he rang on the phone, he said, oh, he used to be in that one. I said, what? And he said, no, 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 he's fine. He's fine now. He's okay. So I met him at a mutual friend of Kiko Harder's flat. Um, uh, she's connected with Temple of Psychic Youth and had interviewed Lemon Kittens right at the beginning. Um, and uh, he seemed okay. He seemed a bit of an, you know, he got a bit drunk, obviously, but an oaf later on, but he was okay, you know. 
Um, and yeah, he was, he was done with all that. Wasn't interested in the usual line, which I find that is the usual line later on. Um, introduced me to various other people, including Ian Reid. Um, and he sacked Ian Reid. Again, there were lots of pointers to point the fact that he was kind of trying to get himself away from stupidity, but because he can't shut up about things, you know, he keeps on coming out with this stuff, you know, and as Reid does, he just permanent load of crap about, about you know, racist, a lot of the time, racist stupidity. And that's why supposedly Wakeford sacked him from Sol Invictus. Um, but um, anyway, I carried on playing bass, and if he'd say stuff, I'd say, well, you know, I don't agree with this, and, you know, we just consider it to be a permanent, you know, personal argument. And this went on, and I'd get various other people involved. Anytime anything would crop up, when the internet started up, because it wasn't there then at that point in time, when it started up, there'd be little things that would crop up, and I'd say, oh, this person's saying so-and-so about that. And in fact, at one point, Wakeford actually mauled me off a pub, you know, some magazine from Belgium wanted to interview me, and said, oh, I wouldn't do that one, it's really right-wing or something like that. So I was getting the right messages at times as regards his intent. Um, and then he married a... I did the gig... I was still playing with, um, uh, I was also playing with, what's his name, um, Current 93, and we did the gig over in um, uh, New York, and that's when he met, um, that's when I met Tony's future wife, and I think I introduced them uh, by phone or something like that, and he, he phoned him up and everything else like that, and he came back to me and he said, um, yeah, he did, but the quote that I've actually made, he the actual quote, or, she was Jewish, you see, so he decided, he, you know, it was over the 10 days he was going to marry her. And he said, oh, I've lost lots of friends through this. And I said, well, they're friends that aren't worth having, aren't they, Tony? You know? <laughs> and he kind of, ooh, ooh, sort of stuff, and grunt, you know, grunted and didn't continue the conversation. And then we did things like we got after the States in the 2000s, so he's, all, he's married and everything else like that. Yeah, these people are supposedly gone away, um, you know, the bad guys. But it was like interesting because early on, about the early 90s, well, I met Stu at home and he was around briefly and, you know, he did some work for them. And then at some point, I remember asking Wakeford, I said, oh, what happened to Stuart? I haven't seen him, re you know, he's not been around. Oh, he's become a star now or something like that. And I'm like, well, oh, OK, he's a rock star. So I didn't think any of it. And then when this thing all blew up in 85, because it started to go a bit, there were certain pointers where, Online, about 2000, he was confronted by some guy, Eric Owens, who's some horrible kind of far-right guy, was involved with one of the compilations that was released by um, Ian Reid, uh, the um, called, uh, what's it, uh, The Pact. That's right, it's for the Illuminatis of Thanatorus, what are they called, you know, one of those occult groups. Because that's the other thing, is all the occult shit intertwined. <laughs> um, he, Eric Owens is kind of like a, you know, pure racist kind of stuff. And he basically wrote this thing about Son Invictus being involved. I said, Tony, this has appeared in this paper I found online. So Tony wrote to him, oh, we've nothing to do with this, that, and, you know, and all this kind of stuff, one of his usual kind of fat things. And uh, the guy came back and said, well, like it or not, Tony, we're your audience. And anyway, one of the things about that, so we just think it on. And we carried on. And there was a situation over in, then that compilation called Looking for Europe came out in about 2000. I remember, it's kind of weird, I can't quite work out what happened. It must have had some pre-release or something, because I knew of it in, in, 80, in 2004, because there was a picture of me, and I thought, well, they haven't given me permission, and there's all these other... I was starting to see these other bands, which I realised were kind of iffy. Yes. I wasn't sure what they were, because, of course, 
Eric, by that time, we, had this, we also had a keyboard player called Eric from um, France, Eric Roger, who's in fantastic band, Guy Bolg. And he'd said to me, he said, all these bands, you know, we're, um, you know, he explained to me about the far right in, in Europe, basically, and the bands that were in the kind of neo-folk scene, which I hadn't really known that much about, uh, which cropped up on that compilation. And Looking for Europe is one of Tony's titles, and it was... And there was a kind of signal, the symbol on the front, which is used by the far right at times, although it's a Catholic symbol, I think, of a kind of cross. And me being in it, I think, oh, I don't want to be in this with these idiots kind of thing. And I was moaning about this, funny enough, to Andrew King and various other people, in other words, people who involved with it, and saying, I don't like this. And there was an all oh, no, it's uh, nothing to do with that really kind of thing. And it's incredible. There was a, <laughs> They were all involved with the bloody stuff. That's the trouble. It was like... One way or other. And then King joined the band. Well, we left the band because, A, we had an argument about money because we found out that for 10 years, Wakeford, we, we, we did a gig in Italy, um, and we found out that, um, by chance, he made some joke about, oh, I'm getting paid a lot more. Because I said to the new violinist, I said, it's great that, you know, we're doing this stuff. Where, you know, it's, Although we don't get paid, because we never got paid for playing on his records, we got, I think I got about £50, maybe, for about three hours he slung me. But then there were a lot of other albums which we never got any money for, all writing credits or anything else like that. It was all, we added bits and pieces. I mean, I can probably only claim to have got writing, should have writing credits for a couple of songs like um, Kings and Crowns and maybe, and that's, a pop, that's possibly it. But it was more an arrangement, you know, the arrangements and stuff. But we never got paid any dosh because we thought, well, it, there's not a great deal of money going. If we split this all up five ways, whatever, you won't better make a living, and et cetera, et cetera. You all play on each other's records. But we were doing this gig in Italy in 2005, and I make I comment about, oh, it's good that, you know, we're giving up money equally to ourselves, to, you know, uh, to the violinist. And Wakeford does one of his kind of mock, kind of, oh, of course I'm getting paid a lot more than that. I said, what? And then it transpired that, no, in fact, you know, he's making this joke, but... The promoter says, oh, well, actually, you know, yes, we're getting very well paid for this gig. You know, as we thought, 150 euros each. Now, Wakeford's being played 1,500 euros for the gig. Right. <laughs> and uh, and is pocketing all, the, you know. I said, we had a big row there and then. And said, look, what the hell is going on? Because it was a case of, there have been constant times in the past when he said, you can only pay your so-and-so. And you think, well... You know, obviously we're tight. You know, it can't be paid. We're not being paid very much money, and that's fine. Because, of course, we're doing the same amount of work live. Yeah, fair enough. He's doing the records. He's writing all the stuff. He can have all of it, and he's getting all the merchandise, which is selling huge amounts. That's fine. All that sort of stuff. That's all his. But live, we're doing the same amount of work. You know, that's and that, that's my attitude even now kind of thing. If I was to do a gig, I wouldn't pay a person less for playing alongside me kind of thing. Um, but anyway, he said this, and it was kind of like, Right, okay. And then we had a big sit-down shout where he chucked his wife up. You've done enough trouble already. She came in saying, you're not £18,000 in debt. And I thought, well, no, but, you know, whose fault was that? It's, not, it's certainly not ours, you know. It's, uh, so, yeah, you know, it's like, you know, it's, kind of, it's probably all on shoes and everything. I mean, she's kind of like a computer whiz kid who gets really kind of quite good jobs. I don't know what she's doing now, but, you know, still they're still together and... You know, she was commanding a good salary, as I thought. Um, but anyway, the um, that was the, uh, the initial argument. But then it was a case where I thought, fuck this, I'm not continuing after this. 
No, in fact, he said that it'll have to stay the same with records, but we have to stay the same live, but we'll be paid more when we got rec released records. So that was that. But then came the gig of the Gothic Treffen, and then Eric said, um, I was playing there with Eric's band as well. And uh, he was getting the run around, and he saw that um, when we were playing with Son Invictus, we were playing in one small hall, you know, because it's a huge, huge kind of goth gig that goes on the whole of Leipzig. And in this small hall, he said, he said, realize that this band's 95% of them are fascist. And I, we, uh, I said, what? You know, so he speaks to Wakeford on the phone, he rings him up and says, this is bad, isn't it? And, uh, Eric, Tony goes, oh, yeah, it's really bad and everything. So then Eric phones the promoter and says, look, put us on in another hall. We don't want this. This is stinky behavior kind of thing. The promoter rings Tony back and says, ah, this is terrible and everything. So Tony Wakeford sacks Eric from that particular, from Sol Invictus in order to avoid the trouble. He sacks him from that but says, oh, you've gone mad. But in, in an email, but you can still continue to be doing these other side project kind of thing with me kind of thing. Um, he had discussed getting rid of weight uh, with Eric before because of the fact Eric was costing him money because he was ferrying him over from France, ignoring the fact that Wake, that, that uh, Eric was doing a lot of record work in his own studio, which he was shipping off to Wakeford to use for nothing. Um, but that's, that's one of the things about Wakeford. There's two things about him. It's not a financial argument that we had. It was initially, but then it became... What happened was, after that, after he did this thing with Eric and kind of sacked him with the band, I thought, right, I committed myself to doing that bloody gig. So I went to Leipzig and did the gig for Eric. Uh, for, for, not for Eric, because he was cancelled, but for uh, for Wakeford. And that was my last gig with him. I, I had to make my own way there because I was going via France, and it was kind of a bit of a nightmare journey. And the journey back, there was no kind of provision for me to travel back. So I had to kind of do this weird thing where I spent 12 hours trying to stay awake after having two hours sleep on a Berlin train station yes, to get to Paris. So I was absolutely zombied, you know, it was like really, really, really gone. Um, and then after that, Wakeford, uh, you know, we, we didn't have any connection really. I think we did briefly, that's right. And I stupidly put Wakeford in touch with Andrew Lyles because um, he, he wanted someone to do stuff, electronic stuff. And I warned Lyles about him, but Lyles didn't pay any attention. And, and subsequently to that, and, uh, then it carried on playing with the thing, and then I just thought, well, I'm not going to do this anymore. In fact, wait for rang me up at the moment. I said, oh, I think, but not sure what I'm going to do with Son Invictus now. Blah blah blah. And thinking he's going to end the band, and this is in November. And I'm actually, I, uh, and then I hear in January from the violinist. She says that I'd been sacked in November, but um, I was already deciding because there was a Polish gig offered, and I said, no, I can't do that. Really, I can't do it. I'd already decided that. I was going to go, but I wasn't going to go nicely. I was going to fuck him up. And then in the interim, I was still friends with Andrew Lyles, and he introduced me to MySpace. Oh, yeah. He's like my Frank, and uh, said, um, yeah, come on, fight MySpace. And uh, so he said, it's like a dating agency, really. And I said, oh, I don't know about that. But I went on MySpace, became um, a party you know, to, to this, and I started looking around and realizing that there's all these bloody fascists on there, all these bands which were playing at this hall and a lot more besides, were all being pally with each other. Um, and it was like, 
oh my god and eric had told me about this guy called um what's his name troy southgate who's this horrible person I mean, you want to look him up he's like uh He's an intellectual in inverted commas. He writes lots of books and he's all, well, basically he's a fascist, you know, full on a fascist. And he's in a band called H-E-R-R, Her, and various other things he guests with. And he's one of these people who's in this, in this picture. Um, the whole thing. Um, and uh, he's like, uh, yeah, this is terrible. And I said to, so Lyle's in a way, was he, he created a Frankenstein's monster because I saw that all this stuff on there and I thought, Fuck this. You know, I've been, not only have I been, you know, lied to over the time and everything else, I wait for it, still kind of, he's been secretly involving himself. Because that was one of the things. When we went up, when we did a tour with that band, with, um, Eric wasn't there at the time, it was, but it, it was still with the new violinist. It was before the 2005, it was in 2004. We did this little bit with the European tour, and we did it, we went to a gig in Hungary, which previously had been okay. And these four blokes that turned up, um, I thought, mm, a bit funny. I know, Wakeford wanted to be interviewed. You know, he, he was always, because it was his band, he'd get interviewed alone kind of thing. He tried doing it with various other people at times. In fact, one point in time in Paris, he, he, I was there for some reason, and they asked him. Um, I'd done a gig. I, I, I needed money. I'd done a gig with Death in June. or was playing for Ian Reid, um, Fire and Ice. And because at the time, I, as I said, my, my stance was as long as they're not pouring petrol through, petrol through people's letterboxes, they're entitled to their own opinions. And I'd argue vociferously, and it was a horrible tour, absolutely bloody awful. They, I, I wanted to kill all of them, and they all wanted to kill me, and, but, we, but I had no tickets home sort of thing. So um, it, it, this, um, uh, it, was, it was a gig at one, of the, one venue in France, in Paris, where... Death in June played, and it was a uh, packed. And then we played the same place, and there wasn't nearly the same audience. And he was asked by this journalist. He said, um, "He said, what's the you know what's the difference between you know audience figures and blah 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 between you and Death in June?" I told him the truth because I don't believe in bullshit. Wakeford went absolutely, you know, turn around and who fucking asked you? <laughs> Really, kind of like really, you know, really, really angry. You know, uh, I, I think absolute bollocks. You know, you can't tell the truth about things. And but this, that should have been a t you know tell point really. You know, the guy is just a tells Teflon Tony tells lies all the damn time, and yet people love him. You know, and think he's absolutely pure as a driven snow. You know, dreadful person. So um, anyway, I noticed he was making linking up with all these bloody fascists and um, online and. I decided I was going to go go to war with them, and, and I wasn't going to stay quiet about it. I was going to point out that there were all that, that there all this nastiness was going on. So actually, in that point, I met up with Stuart home again deliberately because I'd seen him mention something about it online about Wakeford being involved with fascism, and he was he was very kind of tentative. He um, we brokered a kind of meeting with a guy called Mark Pilkington. Um, I don't know if you know him, the Strange Attractor and everything else like that. And Mark introduced us, you know, he was there as a kind of like, just in case I was horrible. Um, and we talked and I said, uh, oh, what about this? I mentioned the name of this guy. It was this guy who was in a fluffy jumper that I met um, called um, Lawson, Richard Lawson. I said, there's this chap, Richard Lawson, this folk player with his mad wife called Eve. Lawson? He was, he was head of the, the youth NF in the, in the 70s. What? And so we did one of those kind of like, 
you know, these people have been around. It was like it was almost like something like uh, you know one of these kind of films where they, where it was a case of, oh my God, I thought he was a friendly parson and he, he was a leader of the the SS and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, Wakeford, he didn't lose many friends in the in the interim. He kind of carried on being friends with them and mm. and was a fascist all the time. But he knew he had to play the game. Yeah, on one hand, it was poison chalice. You know, you he did have an audience. I think a lot of his stuff. I still don't know. If you ask me, is he a fascist? I think he's a bigot. Um, whether he's an absolute A1 fascist, I don't know. He plays up that he's not by, you know, he makes big pointers of the fact in interviews with appalling. I mean, we got so stiff by, it made me very, very paranoid because over the time there were people who were supposed to be okay who really turned on us, like um, that idiot Peter Webb who did a dreadful interview with um, with uh, Wakeford and all the crew. Um it is interesting to note that Wayford has parted company with various people since then, and they like like the, uh, the, the what's it, the guy Harry's who doesn't mention Son Invictus at all in any of his activities now. Um, pretending he's just a you know avant-garde musician, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And his partner Reeves Malka, who was boasted about being a, a full-on what was he, in the Israeli army, and how he was kind of um, very virile. In a letter complaining to um to, to Stuart, you know, he was kind of like, How dare you say this stuff about our friend Tony and all that? And uh, I'm pretty sure Wakeford was very much case at that around that time saying, Oh, you know, we've got this band together and everything and we're all kind of hey, it's a band and yeah and and um what's his name was in, in with them, um Andrew 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 King, who had been a friend of mine and actually started showing his colours and contributing articles to far right magazines and and the stuff afterwards. And I said, why have you joined Soul? And he said, well, I like the music. And then all this stuff. He'd made a few dodgy comments beforehand, and I thought, is this just funny humour? Is this just humour? Uh, and then, because he's like long-haired hippie type. And as, as I said, you just cannot judge. You know, it's, it's a case of you can't tell who the enemy is these days, really. I think that's a part of the problem. And uh, <laughs> You know, yes. it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Peter Webb. I mean, for example, a sociology lecturer from Birmingham, doing you know, supposedly interviewing us and then not including any of it uh, at all in the book and writing this appalling book, which is a kind of cut and shut uh, with um, the Bristol scene and neo folk. You know, with uh, you know, what the hell is that about? And it's published by Routledge, Keegan and Paul. And it's full of spelling mistakes. And, and and you know factual errors, you know appalling ones, like saying that this chap who does rune, there's only two experts in I forget what is it, runeology in the states, and they are, and he mentions two names who have really the same person, yeah, and he hasn't even researched that, you know properly, you know it's like appalling, behavior, appalling, you know, yeah. um, but he did it, you know, it's, and I think he, I don't know why why did he do it, whether he was conned by them, and I, okay, I was conned for a very long time, but. Uh, when, but I was never confronted with this sheer weight of proof that we, because we went fishing through the internet basically, and it was weird because the way the internet works is obviously sometimes you go on there ask some question, nothing would happen about it, and then three months later there'd be loads about it, and it was it was like that, you know, the the growth of the internet was such that, you know, you became it it became much more informed. Um, you know, it's, it's happened throughout the times, like with um, Casa, Casa Pound, the far-right Italian organisation. There was bugger all on them. There's only ever one article. And then gradually, bit by bit, people release more and more, and you find out stuff. I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's a lot of... You've seen the Who Makes the Nazis site, have you? I, mm. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that basically, I mean, I've, I've you know, extrapolated on that story, but I commented a lot in the comments on those things as well. And the actual reactions of people is kind of... It's, it's very, very disparaging. You know, it's... You know, I have the kind of two categories now. I have kind of things, those that I, I won't accept fence sitters. And people say, well, you were in the band for so long. Yes, I know I was, because I was lied to. And B, because I had the stupid idea that people could express ideas, had the right to express ideas, no matter what they were, and not realizing the whole power of the, you know, the propaganda and all this kind of stuff, which is what they were peddling. And then they had a new generation of stuff where people can live in a bubble and be fed this crap and then go and shoot a bunch of school kids. You know, it's uh, do, do I think wait for contributor? Yes, I do. You know, he, he is part and part of the problem. You know, that, that, sl that sheer splurge of kind of neo-folk bands that there are, I don't know, it must be on onwards of at least a thousand bands are as a result of this kind of small grouping of people in the first place, like Doug, you know, um, Nursery Wound, not Nursery Wound, sorry, um, Current 93 and, and Wakeford. And they've all grown, all that stuff, shit has grown out of it. You know, it's, uh, yes. yeah, for the most part, they, you know, so yeah, <laughs> you hit the blue, touch, hit the blue touch paper on this one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm unapologetic about it. I mean, it's, but uh, I've had so many people and it's, I could have shut up and just walked away. But it would be the wrong thing to do, you know. It's uh, aside from feeling you know you've had time stolen from you, um, you know, uh, it's my own stupid fault. A lot, a lot of the time, I should, I should have, I had my eyes focused on other areas, on on other other considerations, and didn't really pay much attention, and didn't really you know give it much thought. I wasn't a politico, as they've said. I was not involved in that kind of thing. But oh yeah, I remember that was one. Point. I remember thinking we played a gig at one point in in uh, in Europe, and we were playing. I think it was Krefeld, basically Krefeld, and it was in this building adjacent to a meatpacking plant down a quite a long kind of driveway, and therefore we couldn't see the road. And uh, someone came down and said, um, "Hey, I oh, just turned a police car over out there." What? I said, "What? What's it? Yeah, anti-far." It was Hitler's birthday we're doing a gig on. All right. Wakeford turns around to the promoter and says, what are you doing putting us on Hitler's birthday? This is a man who was would have been well aware that it's Hitler's birthday because I think his own birthday falls fairly close to it. I didn't know it was Hitler's birthday. And, and, and was kind of, he's done this all the time. He shoots the bloody messenger. You know, it's a case of, uh, you know, there are other instances of it, you know, kind of like, what do you mean putting us on a gig like this? Bloody stupid and all this kind of stuff, you know, and it was like nothing to do with it. The promoter still puts them out at times, you know, kind of, huh, just do the money kind of thing, you know. Um, and then Wakeford had to, and it was, I think it was about, and in that particular tour, it was about eight gigs, 12 gigs, eight, only eight went ahead. All the rest of them were cancelled um, because of things like this. Because um, I thought, I remember thinking, I could be beaten up now for being something that I'm not. <laughs> yes. You know, really, this is like absurd situation. I shouldn't be there. You know, there shouldn't ever be a situation. But that's what, that was the other thing I was going to do is thinking, well, anybody who plays for Wakeford now, they really shouldn't play. Unless they're fascists, they really shouldn't play for them. Because as far as I'm concerned, had someone come up to me at any point in that time and 
presented a cogent argument and shown me proof, i.e. a lot of the stuff that we'd found, that there was this still, there's still this connection and it wasn't being excised to the extent it should have been. <laughs> I know why I'm, I ran out of credit. I just had to put, it was just... Um... Oh, God, sorry. I'm using a, yeah, I, I, I haven't got one of those... Um, I've got, I've got unlimited calls, unfortunately. No, no, that, that, that's yeah, fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, what was I going to say? Ice and Licht. That's what they're called. Yeah, I can't remember the guy's name. Ice and, Ice and Licht. Yeah, and mm-hmm. he's kind of packed up, I think, doing his label now. But he was kind of like very much in, fingered by the things. I mean, this is it. You know, that the, the, they made out because you could show various things that you know they come up with some daft kind of conclusions that this person's a fascist because blah, 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 and they'd life it off, you know, the usual thing. They'd find one mistake and say, this person is a fascist. No, um, say this person's making, you know, made a mistake. I mean, even, what's his name? When Sol Invictus appeared in Searchlight in 2011, and somehow, I can't work out what happened. The guy we, were de- we, we knew who did the article um, was this Russian guy, did it under an assumed name, Somehow he said, oh, well, they added that in after I did the interview. Or not did it, did the piece. Um, and it was that Wakeford had a brother, and the brother was in the fire brigade. And I said, he hasn't got a brother. He never had a brother. You know, had he been a brother in the fire brigade, it, when, when we're actually getting on and okay, he would have told me, because my, my father's in the fire brigade. And that's why I did fear engine, life extinguisher, et cetera, et cetera. So it would have come out that there had been this, Yes. This brother, you know, for what, you know, okay, they're estranged, but for, it wouldn't matter. It'll be a sort of, you know, whatever. And the Wakeford said, you know, we haven't got them, of course. And of course, that sort of thing, when they print something like that, it kind of adds, makes everything else seem a bit kind of, oh, yeah, really? Is that true? You know, so, yeah, it gives aspirates, you know, but then, you know, you've got Trump now and everybody believes him. And it's, I, I suppose I would have been absolutely. I mean, I've been shocked by some of the crap that Trump's comes out with and thinking people still believe him. But then having seen the sheer disbelief, you know, lack of belief in the fact that Wakeford gets proven as being a liar. No, people still ignore that. Let's go ahead, you know, um, again and again and again uh, and deal with him. My, my attitude now with, it, with him now is any promotion, you know, people shouldn't promote him. They shouldn't write, not write, write about him. They shouldn't interview him or, or you know, Give, say things about his band, no, you know, promote his band in any way, um, because basically that with that all comes all this baggage. He can't. It's something he can't possibly shake, um, and it's not sour grapes about the band. I couldn't give a fuck about that. I and mean, I hate. Funny that I took on board a whole load of fascists that I just never met, don't know from Adam, as it were. I hate them because they're fascists and they believe in something that's a part of shit. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Wakeford has the added disadvantage of, you know, yeah, we used to know each other and he did, he basically did a dirty on us. But um, I couldn't, you know, some of the other people I've never met before. I've never met the guy, you know, I'll, I'll go after them. Or if I, you know, when I when I was very active in doing that, it took a, if you like, someone said, well, you're obsessed by it kind of thing. This has taken over from your evil ex-girlfriend. Um, right, you know, you're, now you're obsessed with this kind of thing. But. It's 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 eased off eased off a while now, but then I think you know since since the uh, searchlight articles got got in play, they started playing it. But even so, you have things like that um, case with the, you know, just recently the woman who got sent down for eight years for naming you know who, who named a baby Adolf. I don't know if you remember seeing yes, this in the news. Yes. Yeah, Wakeford had connection with her. 
I didn't even know about this. And we found a, him chatting on on the Facebook with her. And it's like, right, yeah, and you're not fascist, Wakeford. You know, it, 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 it's how much of a piece of string. He's laughing about it now. He gets away with it. He's Teflon. No one ever touches him. No one says, you know, you say this, oh, yeah, but they could have just this, that, and the other. It's one of those things where coincidences tend to wear very, very thin indeed when there's so many of them. <laughs> and he's going one of the most recent ones I got threatened by a couple of fascists online a, an idiot called Christian Carter and he was having a go and I tore him to pieces and then he came back and started being an arsehole on the uh, on the one of the Carl Blake Facebook page and I've blocked him now but the second time or third time along he brought along a pal with him Powell was called Piers Meller now Piers Meller has appeared on TV in uh, you know, recent times, and various various kind of um, de- uh, in various demonstrations and everything else like that, and he's a very nasty fascist. In you know, there's gradings of fascism. There's the polite ones. This one's a thug. This one's a, he's an over six foot tall skinhead thug, and he says to me something about something. And they're having a go, and they're trying to impugn that you know, make comments about sexual things or something like that. And he said. And because at one point in time, Wakeford started a stupid bloody rumour about me. He found it was quite funny to call me a war criminal and then sort of extrapolate on it. And a lot of people didn't, a lot of people believed him being very gullible. And it was funny at first, but then it started twisting round. And in the end, he had to come out and say, well, I was lying uh, about it. But, you know, because some Americans were kind of, well, this is a serious business, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't, I got a bit pissed off because it started twisting and being about having unnatural interests. Right, God. Um, yeah, I know. So it was getting a bit iffy. Um, so I said, "Look, this is this is wrong. Stop this." So, so anyway, he. Um, but Piers Meller started alluding to this in the Sol Invictus Forum, and I thought, "That's going. That's early eight, early two thousands. So he was one of the people in the early two thousands as well. This bloke has been active now." that Wakeford would have denied ever meeting uh, Troy Southgate, by the way, and I can't prove it, but I, I'm absolutely certain he, know, he knew who he was. And, you know, I even think that I might have met him at an early party of Wakeford's. Now, I, I, I'm trying to find out if the guy ever had tattoos removed from his hand, because I remember this bloke having tattoos on his hand. <laughs> and he looked very, very much like him. But this guy, Piers Mello, was an old, obviously an old, was on there chatting away. And Piers Mello, Piers... You know, you look at him up, look him up in Hope Not Hate. He's there all over the place. You look at him in Searchlight. He's all over the place. And this is someone who was Wakeford was perfectly happy in chatting with on the forum. Unfortunately, it's all been bloody archived. If I could get that back, you know, that I'd hit him over the head with that as well. You know, because mm-hmm. I think you know, you bastard. You know, you really didn't. You know, even though he's got a Jewish wife. It's like, but then we found all these other anomalies that Richard Richard Lawson, who would run the NF, his wife is part Jewish, so that makes Richard effectively, you know, from the belief kind of thing, Jewish as well. So, you know, they, they always throw those things up. You can't be so-and-so because he's got lesbians in the band. He can't be so-and-so because he's got Jewish people in the band, or he's married to a Jewish woman. And they use that, and she's used that. And she's basically, I've, I've decided I'm going to call her Sonia Sutcliffe, if you like. <laughs> Yeah. You know, so, I did believe Sonia Sutcliffe didn't know anything about 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 um, about, about, about what's his face, Peter Sutcliffe. I do believe her because it's perfectly easy for for people to get away with things. But for her to be 
you know, she's one beyond that. You know, for her to ignore all the stuff that's about him and still go on, I don't know, it's like mad. Yes. So what would you what would you say to an 18, 18-year-old self starting out in music? Uh, an 18-year-old self, don't have anything to do with... Uh, with, with with fascists, they're liars, and they can't, and you can't possibly believe them. You know, in other words, don't be, you know, don't believe, uh, uh, yeah, don't believe a leopard, a leopard change it can change its spots. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's from that that point of view. What else would I say? I mean, you know, on a positive side, and to do with the kind of productive thing, literally just do what in music and whatever else aside from the politic political thing, do whatever you feel is you want to do music wise. You know, don't feel that there are any rules yes i know in terms of music you know um you know don't feel hampered by rules or genres or all that kind of crap you'll be forced towards them but there's reason you know there's plenty of reasons in the past and bands that prove that if you stick to your guns people will if they're any if they're worthwhile they'll come around to you or if or maybe they won't you know like well radiohead for example i really like that band they did what they want to do if you look at it it's a lot of it's they've done some pretty extreme stuff and you know but which other people wouldn't take if it came from unknown people it's partly the label of radiohead that they'll buy it for you know yes it's uh yeah i mean we've always fought against that kind of stuff you know lemon kittens were a you know we used to think of ourselves as being a band doing stuff like that that we could we you know and we could still go on top of the pops why not we had tunes people said that they couldn't hear the tunes but i got argue with that maybe there's no maybe the rhythms uh <laughs> somewhat different at times because uh, partly that was what partly due to the recording. Yeah, you know, yes. we didn't care basically, but equally so, it was also partly down to the recording technique when we started. You know, we had to lay down the drums last of all, otherwise they became extremely muddy and things like that. Yeah, and we did, we never used click track and stuff. So yeah, literally just do what the hell you want to do. Oh, the other thing was I always remember our spiritual advisor Tony Furs. You know. <laughs> As much as I poo-hoo a lot of that kind of stuff, way, way back at the beginning, we, he was using the I Ching, and we asked it, I asked it, well, you know, what would I do to want to become what I wanted to be? And I wanted to be, basically, at that time, I would have liked to have been King Crimson. You know, um, I didn't have nearly enough technique to achieve, to achieve that kind of thing. Um, but basically, the answer came back, and it was one of those ones which you think, well, that's just a piece of good advice you could give, you could, you could get from anywhere if you wanted to read it that way. And it was basically, you've got within yourself to do what you want to do. In other words, yeah, and, and that was, I think, what I did in the end. You know, I, there would, rather than if I tried to emulate anybody at all i'd get it wrong and it would be okay because people wouldn't spot what i was trying to copy and uh and it would be because it was so far off the mark it wasn't true and and uh and some of the stuff i just couldn't do because it was you know i wasn't a good enough musician so therefore and then i just well you accept it to be kind of yourself you know you do what you can yourself and you acquire skills down the way i mean i'm i think that that's what i would tell them i say what's your name i ask them the name and i say okay you, you, John Smith, are the best John Smith, your best person of being John Smith there ever was. Yes, you know that's the thing. Yeah, um, that you know, just have self belief, just get on and do it. Yes, and and don't don't be don't be restricted in your playing. I mean, I, I still kind of believe that stuff. I believe that I did stuff that way back at the beginning that is every bit is kind of through. I think people sometimes with musical learning and everything else like that, they learn cliches, they learn 
They learn how to do things the way other people do them, and they simply become a stale copy of those other people, rather than kind of developing quirks and cadences and stuff like that. There's their own, you know, their own thing, as it were. You know, their 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 own identity, um, which which can be a handicap sometimes. In, in you know, often it's a handicap in drummers. I find you know <laughs> the quirks, but 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 that that depends. I mean, you know, not everybody. You can't get someone to be Bill Brufford one day a minute and Phil Collins the next, no matter what Phil Collins is. Yes. They're different people. They play, they play different what they played different ways. Collins has never done anything that Red that that, that, that Bruford did on Red by King Crimson and uh, and yeah. That's one of those things. And uh, yeah. Says he being an old boring old prog ever. <laughs> <laughs> well but Cole, I think there's lots yes. of great stuff around now, you know. I think there's lots of great bands around now and do, doing some very, very interesting things. I've had other people from of my generation say, Oh no, the music these is no good. Because I've I've listened to this Iggy Pop album from nineteen seventy four and yeah, it's great. It's all great and there's still good stuff coming out, you know. It's um Yes. Yeah. Well I yeah, I agree. And yeah. anyway, and yeah. Danielle is still well. She's still. Danielle's still well. Yeah, she's hopefully at one point in time. Well, she's got ill health in various in, in bits and pieces, but hopefully, she she was planning on banging to get her studio before with kind of poor Viner stuff going. And hopefully, one day, she will be able to get around to doing music 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 again. And uh, yeah, does she does she good. still yeah. enjoy kind of singing or doing anything? <laughs> But he sings all the bloody time. It's a pain in the ass sometimes. If I'm, I mean, I don't, I don't live here, but I visit her on occasion, you know. And uh, uh, sometimes we try to concentrate. She whistles all the time. But yeah, um, yeah, I'm sure he does still like music. She has spells on and off. Both of us do, you know. Uh, you know, I suppose. I mean, I don't. For example, I don't play very often when I'm at home. Um, it's normally to do. It's normally to celebrate a new pedal, a new effects pedal that I'm kind of mad about. That I'll go and buy one. And well, I am recording at home. I got over. I haven't done any release for a long, long time, but I've got about over 300 pieces I'm working on at once, which is a bit of a tall order, but I just decided I was going to work that way rather than get bored with number one when I got to number 12 kind of thing. Yes. Well, that's good. Well, yeah, on the other, I know she has, yeah, go on. I was, no, I was going to say, I'm, I'm going to have to yeah. go soon because I've got a, a, yes, a, of course. another point. But look, thank you, Carl, ever so much for your the amazing history of a musician. That's amazing. Great, well, yeah. And I hope it's not. I hope it won't be too biased to what the, the, the what comes out won't be too biased towards a, the whole bloody Wakeford thing. It's a kind of. It's. A, I don't really consider it. it's. Although it's a considerable amount of my time, it was a wastefulness. I wasn't. It wasn't my creative. No, uh, I know that's my tricky. creative thing. It was his thing more than anything else like that. You know. I might. I did yes. left hand, right hand as well, of course, and uh, which was a kind of, going and touring all over the bloody place, and you know, quite reason. Reason well. Actually, having said that, I don't like the music that much. I, even though I created a lot of it through bass lines, I don't. It was a much nicer bunch of people. Yeah. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. Thank you ever so much for listening. And a massive thank you to Cole Blake for giving me the time for that interview. Um, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. Um, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. And all these have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Fill your boots. They might just change your life. Anyway, take care.